Hello, this is Washington for Beautiful People on Deep State Radio. I'm your host, Emily Brandwin, at CIA Spy Girl on Twitter. We're thrilled to be joined by actor, an actor you've seen on pretty much everything. And if we had like three hours, I would go through all the IMDb credits, but we don't have that kind of time. So I'll just do like a best of list. You've seen him on Drew Carey, Office Space, Veep. God, I love that show. American Housewife, Love and Better Things, which is coming back too. This is very exciting. Oh my God, you're literally everywhere. Um, it's Diedrich Bader. Hey, Diedrich. Hi. Hi, Emily. How are you? I'm good. I'm really excited to be on your show. Um, question. Do people mispronounce your name a lot? Oh, yeah, a really? lot. Yeah, totally. My wife does. What's the worst, like, butchered pronunciation of your name have you gotten? Um, uh, Probably Dieter. Ooh. Yeah, that's Dieter, because that's a much more common name, and so they just, it's an entirely different name. But it's, it's uh, most people pronounce it Dietrich, but there's no, there's no T in there. So it's oh, really Deedrick. Deedrick. Yeah. I yeah. was I'm now I'm like, how do they do that? And that'll get stuck in my head. I can't believe I asked you that because now I'm gonna do it wrong. Oh. <laughs> Damn it. It happens. I Damn don't really it. correct anybody unless they ask. It's it's just easier not to. It's a difficult name. You know, it wasn't my idea, and so I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> you can't claim it. You can't be like, oh I can't know. claim it, so yeah. Um it's funny. No, I always, I'm always fascinated with that because people mispronounce my last name, which is quite possibly the easiest last name to ever say or pronounce. It's literally could not be easier. And I'm like, how did you bastardize my name? That was like <laughs> so much work to do that. Um, yeah, you have to really go around the bend for that. Literally, you literally, there was a lot of work. Maybe you slept on it. You did like a keynote presentation on how you were going to butcher it, but it's very impressive. Um, yeah, I it's was, almost spelled phonetically, too. I mean, it's like it Brandwin. Brandwin. Yeah. You're like, Brandy Wine? Yeah. I'm like, no, but that would be delightful. But no, that isn't it. <laughs> you also need to add two more letters. I don't know where. I, I kept saying, I'm like, there's no silent Y or silent E anywhere, but cool. It's, you know, there's nothing like that. It's always amazing to me. Uh, we I The reason I have to tell you, so our show obviously is about Washington from Beautiful People. It's about the connections between entertainment and politics and where they've merged. And after, you know, or coming up to 2016, we've seen folks in the entertainment community get really involved and their voices get louder. And so it's always exciting to reach out and talk to folks like you in the community. And yeah. I was fascinated because I feel like you have your foot and it was sort of in your DNA to be political anyway. You were... Born in Alexandria, Virginia, which I'm heading out to D.C., and I know it well. You moved to Paris, and then yeah. your dad – okay, I'm just going to jump ahead. Was your dad in the CIA? Yeah. Um, I yeah, he was recruited in Vienna when he was a Fulbright scholar to Vienna. He was recruited <clears throat> because he, um, he was essentially orphaned, and uh, they always look for that. Guys – um, that go to the Ivy League that were either orphaned or essentially orphaned. He was kind of kicked out of the house when he was a little kid. 
And uh, so he grew up alone and had no father figure. And that's really like what the CIA likes more than anything. Seriously. So I'm, I was fascinated because I'm reading all this stuff. And then I was like, and I get to the CIA part. I'm like, what? I feel like you helped out <laughs> on me. I'm like, after all the tweeting that we've done, it could have been something you could have slipped in and been like, oh, yeah, my dad worked for the agency. That's, <laughs> I'm I, cool like that. It was. Yeah, no, he worked for the agency. And, he, and you know, as you, as. Uh, people in the intelligence agency never really leave. Um, yeah. He kind of went in and out and always reported back to uh, people that he respected within the agency, uh, things that they thought were of interest. You know, um, I think that that's what happens when you're, uh, you know, when you're a veteran of any kind, you're always connected with those that you fought with. So um, even when he was chief of staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I think he had a kind of open door policy to a lot of the people within the CIA. It's, there's an institutional knowledge and a language you learn once you join the intelligence community that I think is really hard. You know, once you lose it, you don't want to. You don't want to lose that resource. And to have people that you can rely on who have that expertise, it just makes sense. It's It was interesting when Trump had a hissy fit and he said, you know, he's going to, you know, blackball, you know, John Brennan and, you know, Clapper and all these folks. And it's, I mean, besides it being just pissy and, you know, stupid and absolutely, you know, childish, you're getting rid of that institutional knowledge. You have all these people who we even when they're out of office, we rely on the intelligence community goes to them and says, what do you think? You had this relationship maybe three months ago before your predecessor came in. And so right. to lose that is such it's so myopic and just infantile, but yeah. it it makes sense. Did well, he... it's it's interesting. I mean, he started off his relationship, uh, you know, with a, creating a backdrop where he gave that speech at the CIA, where he used oh. the Hall of Heroes and and those that have fallen in the field in defense of the country as a backdrop, and then had his um, you know his cronies laugh around them as if like it was the CIA guys, knowing that the CIA guys weren't on camera. Um, so I think that started the relationship badly because they, no one likes to be a prop. Um, yeah. and, um, especially those that have fallen. So the, you know, the, uh, the heroes. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's obviously there's, uh, in the CIA and all of the intelligence services, there's been a tremendous amount of historical mistakes, but that said more than not, they have tried very hard to, uh, to secure our country. It's interesting. I always tell people, I said, you will, you'll hear about mistakes that the Intel community makes. You don't hear about a lot of their successes. You know, it's rare that you hear about a big win, but that's okay because those are the everyday wins that keep us safe. Uh, they know the job when they get in, they know that they can never take a victory lap. They just know it. So, um, they don't expect it, but, but don't and ever assume that they're not fighting for you every day. I mean, that's every, the thing that I always say to people. Every single day. And they've, it, to me, that's what's been so sad with this administration and with Trump. That speech was, I mean, there were so many lines where I was like, it's, he's crossed the line, he's crossed the line. But yeah, 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 if, yeah. if you go to the agency and you stand in front of that wall, it is palpable. And that's the only way I can describe it. There is a feeling that is palpable that if you don't feel it in your bones, if you don't feel it in your gut and your heart to see those stars of every woman and man who have who has truly given their life for this country, if you don't feel that okay. and you don't feel that reverence, there is something completely dead inside of you, which made yeah. sense. There's why something he... missing. Yeah, yeah. There's something just... missing pathological. It's also, 
It's interesting because it's obviously someone that doesn't understand sacrifice or working for no. someone else. Um, yeah, you know, it's 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 revealing uh, to say the least. It is, and it's uh, and what I hope is going to come out is that after all this mess goes away, that people will realize and have a have another respect, a newfound respect for law enforcement and the intel community, and not branding them so politically because as you're. I'm sure, as you know, and you can attest, it's women and men who come in and are truly, they might have political opinions, but they're completely unbiased because when you're doing law enforcement oh, yeah. intelligence, it's black and white. There's not, you can't get creative. You can't be somebody in entertainment and give it a lot of like shadings of gray because that's life or death. So it's just- That's exactly right. It just is what it is. I mean, it's not, It of course there's analysis and there's ruling out those that tell you what you want to hear. Um, that's what a lot of intelligence is, is, is gathering and gathering. Even those that lie to you or are telling you something of interest, they're lying about something that uh, clearly they're steering you in a direction that somebody else may not be. Or It's interesting. I mean, it all is revealing. So, um, so yeah, I mean, a lot of it is sifting through, but none of it is creative. No. <laughs> you know? No. I, none of it. When I first joined, you write basically the, how you message back and forth between stations, you know, you write cables and I, you know, I came from this very artsy background. So I would write these floral, you know, these very flowery cables and use all these like amazing adjectives. And I probably tried to sign something with an XO XO and they're like, um, Let's take it down a notch there, Chachi. Let's, <laughs> yeah. let's, let's bring it back. Yeah. You're at a 10. Let's try a two and go from there. <laughs> you don't need so many reallys and varies. I'm like, okay. <laughs> you do you. It's okay. Have you ever been to the agency? Um, I have not. No, I've obviously driven by it a ton of times growing up there. But no, I I, uh, I was never able to, to see the hall and see that wall. Uh, I, I wish. Um, but uh, But no. I well, spent a lot of time when I was a kid in the Senate. Um, that's cool. As I said, he was uh, chief of staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And as a little kid, that was really fun. I rode around on that train that goes in between the two buildings and, uh, um, and you know, and spent a lot of time in his office. It was a very different time in Washington. Um, I mean, you know, some people talk about it as backroom dealing and that kind of thing, the old school in the beltway type of thought. But let me tell you, things got done. Um, people didn't go home to their constituencies. Maybe they were a little bit removed, but they did have a Washington culture. And because of that, they were able to accomplish more in a more civil tone because they knew each other and yeah. their spouses knew each other and their social life was all part of one thing. And yes, it, it, it does create a Washington culture and that's okay. Yeah. I don't understand where that's a negative thing. If you're getting shit done truly for the people to try to improve the lives of all of us. It's great. I embrace that culture. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Really that look, he had a full bar in his office and senators used to come in and, um, and you know, work things out. Um, That's the way things got done. And if you don't think that that's right, then really you should grow up because that's the way most business is done. And uh, and it's the people's business, and they were really just trying to, to talk turkey. Anyway, that's that's my, sense, that's my saw. No, I, I totally agree. It's funny. The first time there's there was offices in the agency, I was like, they have booze in their office. I was very young. I was like, this is crazy. And then I was like, oh, yeah. It's still, <laughs> it's still like, boring. It works. Yeah, but I was like, you know what? And then I'm like, y'all have earned it. Like, if it's the end of the day, if it's Vespers, like, you want to kick back, great. Did you? Yeah, sure. 
did you see feel sort of the the magnitude of where you were or was it such an everyday for you that you're like I'm just going to dad's work oh no I felt the magnitude of where it was absolutely I mean um you know the those halls those offices the the people I was with it it was a unique opportunity and something that I I really relish looking back on uh but yeah at the oppor- at the at the time I really did you know I went to a lot of committee hearings and stuff like that you have to you know it's like growing up in a showbiz family a little bit in that um you know most people talk showbiz uh, around the table. Well, we talked politics and we talked international politics. And, and so for me, it was always a constant source of interest as I had to join the conversation. You know, it was kind of like the family business and everybody, um, everybody joined in. It was really fun, actually. Was it your, like, it's funny. I, I imagine that you would sit home from dinner with your folks and be, and then this would be your conversation, which I think is fascinating. And such an amazing opportunity for a child to grow up in that and to have that awareness and to be able to talk, you know, in that type of detail. I mean, was it, was it sort of like that when your dad would come home, like, this was my day. And then you're, Oh my God. um, Every day was like that. But my uh, father insisted he was very formal guy. Like for example, if he was going to a barbecue, he'd wear an ascot. Um, I love your dad. Right? He, we would sit down to dinner. We would never eat in front of the television. We would sit down to dinner, candlelit dinner, and talk about our day. But mostly we would talk about what's happening in the world. And, you know, in the 70s and 80s, that was a really interesting time for the world. I mean, um, right. you know, the, the, the oh my God, the colonels and the uh, everything that was happening, the, the Bader-Meinhof and, and uh, um, everything that was happening went through our table and was discussed. And what my dad was really good um, uh, was that he started off as a medievalist and then became a modern European historian. That's what his PhD was in. So, um, so he ended up being able to really reach back into historical precedent and also the, the cultural, the deep cultural cuts, in, in other words, really figuring out where particular actions came from because they have a cultural um, history which I don't think we do as much anymore. I think that some of that, which is an art to me and is, is a little bit lost. I, I there's so many, le- I mean, I, I look, I'm like, haven't we learned this lesson before? Haven't we seen this before? <laughs> and I don't know if it's just well, one of the problems. Is, one of the problems with Google and, and the internet is people think that they know everything because they're able to look everything up. And the, the difference is well, being to be able fair, to... I've diagnosed so many injuries via <laughs> WebMD. And so I do feel like I'm a doctor at that and watching lots of videos. <laughs> but I can diagnose anything. I legitimately give me something, I'll do it. But I'm sorry, <laughs> didn't mean to interrupt. I was just having this debate with somebody. No, no, no. It's, it's, uh, it's totally true. People feel like they know. Well, I mean, the facts are the facts. Uh, but at the same time, it's analysis that makes it interesting. So it's those that can take the quantum leap and use what facts they do know in order to analyze what's happening right now. And a lot of people say, you know, uh, every culture is entirely unique and that historical precedent doesn't mean anything. And, you know, if you're if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it is the other side of that coin. But yeah. there is a lot to learn. There there are reasons that we react the way that we do. There are alliances that um, have come and gone over history. And a lot of those uh, things have to do with modern um, choices that we make. I mean, what's happening, obviously, in the Sudan is, is something that has a long um, history. Uh, and in Yemen, for example, those are, those are things that 
um, have historical precedent. And if we just wander in and make good guys and bad guys out of it, it, it it's a little more complicated than that. I heard a quote from a former agency person. I always thought, I always think about that. She goes, you know, the bad guys never think that they're the bad guys. And sure. it's, we're all the heroes of our own story. We're all the heroes of their own story. So there's always gray. Like we, to your point, you know, we can go in and say good guys, bad guys, and that's it. But there's, there's so much more there and it's having the analysis to understand the layers and the depth that goes into it. I tell everybody that the heroes at the CIA aren't the operations officers. It's, it's the analysts. They're the ones who yeah. who pull it together. They are the true heroes. And if you meet a CIA analyst, which most of them are overt and can say, hey, I work for the CIA, you thank them because they are the ones who are making sense of all of this. They get all the intelligence and they make it into a way that is, that is, you know, sort of, I always say like edible where, you know, our, our decision makers, our policymakers can go, okay, this is how I'm going to make an informed decision. And that's what they right. do. And that to me is, that's the hero. You know, I right, say- absolutely. And Emily, the, 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 a lot of the faults that the CIA um, have made recently um, were because they had bypassed those analysts. For example, yeah. the aluminum tubes, um, yeah. you know, and the whole run up to the Iraqi war, um, they had bypassed, they had gone to junior analysts and to just those that, that you know, that acquire the, uh, the goods and not those that really take a hard look at these things and go, we can rule it out. I mean, look, a senior analyst would have ruled Curveball out in a second. And He's a drunk who's telling us what we want to hear. It's I'm sorry, Emily, No, I was going to say, in a heartbeat, also, any operations officer, it was interesting to me that it w- there was a willingness, there was so much pressure at the time to yes. get information, to get intelligence. You, had, you know, Cheney was, you know, clearly championing this, you know, this push but I think it, you know, it blinded so many people in the sense that they were willing to believe curveball. They were willing to believe this when you're going, if it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. It's the oldest thing in the world, but it's totally true. Don't believe those that tell you exactly what you want to hear. It's never that way. Unless it's your uh, in husband, any business, you really, but especially in intelligence gathering. And it exactly. was very frustrating for my dad. At the time, he wrote... Um, uh, an op-ed in uh, the International Herald Tribune about it, um, and comparing it to the Gulf of Tonkin, um, which is basically what they wanted to hear as well. And the reason that my father had to, we had to move to France, was basically because of the Gulf of Tonkin. He brought down Robert McNamara at the Senate Select Committee in Intelligence with uh, Franklin Church. But anyway, he was comparing the two things, and um, you know, anytime you establish policy, it's a little like rhetoric, like. Uh, rhetoric follows policy, not policy following rhetoric. You can't make your decision um, about something and then start collecting information, hoping that it works out, because hoping ultimately you you're going to get what that. you want. Yeah. Um, that's what's really frustrating. Also, in modern day politics, I think that um, I mean I'm changing gears here a little bit. Oh, the fact that that rhetoric is essentially all we have now is is really distressing to somebody who follows news every day. It's. It's a little, it's horrifying to be honest. It's because that's all it is. There's nothing substantiating anymore. And he's, it's, and it should scare us. It should really scare us. And I think it is starting to get to that point. Uh, You know, every time I turn on the news, I'm like, okay, it's going to be an okay day. And then I see it, I'm like, oh, this is the day it's all going down. This is the day we're going to implode. Like it's because there isn't, I'm, there's no adults anymore, or they are, and they've been silenced. And so all we have is, 
is this, you know, useless rhetoric and it's, and it's not helpful. Yeah. It's clearly damaging, you know, the very, you know, the very fabric of our democracy. When you're, you were talking about your dad, I wanted to get back to that because I saw that you'd moved to Paris. I wanted, how long were you there? And can you just, I just think it's fascinating and what your dad did and how it affected you in terms of your ideology to see that happen. Um, oh, um, yeah, we moved uh, for three or four years. I can't remember. I was pretty little. I was about uh, two and a half when we left the uh, States. Um, so that was like 69, something around there. Um, and then uh, we were there for three or four years. And it was a fascinating time for me. Um, it really cemented me as an actor because I was deeply alienated. Having just learned English, I was supposed to learn another language. And it really threw me off. So I kind of, I really did a deep dive into movies um, and especially love silent characters like Charlie Chaplin and, and um, uh, you know, like Buster Buster Keaton. Keaton and, uh, and Harpo Marx. Um, but, uh, but I really found a love for the movies that it really changed me a lot. And also of course, being overseas, you see the world from a different perspective and coming back to the United States. Um, I saw it with sort of fresh eyes, even though I was really young. I mean, I, it's it's always fascinating to read and to hear about how others perceive us. There was a really interesting book. Oh gosh, I could remember. I wish I could remember the name of it. Of uh, a writer that uh, moved to Turkey to Istanbul, um, a woman uh, uh, who was I think working for the New York Times, and uh, she wrote about the perspective from that side, how they view us, and uh, it's always interesting to see that. As an actor, you have to always. Think about how people perceive you, but as a country, we don't really think about it that much. We really just tend to posture and to say that you know we're number one, and uh, and that everything we've done is for the betterment of the world. And that's not entirely true. I mean, I think our heart was in the right place a lot of times, but a lot of times, a lot of times we pursued policies that didn't necessarily follow that ideal. It's interesting about travel. I always say that it's if it's something you can do and it's something you can you know give to your family. And I I know you travel a lot too. I think it's a gift, just for that perspective alone. It was interesting. I went to Morocco a few months ago, and we were in one of the little souks. It was amazing, and I loved it. And I cried when I left. It was I was not a. It was a little embarrassing. I just thought it was just a beautiful place. And I was paying for it. Was actually it was ridiculous. I was like hugging everybody. My husband's like, can we just not? We're gonna have an international incident. You 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 need to stop him. Like, but I love it here. I was paying for something, and uh, a gentleman said, you know, can I can I thank you in Arabic? And I was like, well, of course. He goes, well, I know you all don't like us, and so I didn't want to offend. And it broke my heart. And he's like, yeah. So a lot, you know, we speak a lot of French because we just you know we don't want to you know. We're so grateful that you're here, and we love that you're, you know, loving our country and all that. And he started explaining, it and literally, it was like somebody punched me in the stomach. I, I sure, that's you just sure. go and like I call it like the Trump apology tour, and you're just like, I'm so sorry. It's not reflective of us. <laughs> it's not us. It's him. It's him. Don't worry. We're not. None of us. And like we just keep going, and you just kind of have this like verbal diarrhea out of the mouth to make it better. And I just thought it's so interesting how people view us now. And whenever we travel, people always ask, are you from Canada or America? And we're like, what's the right answer? I'm not sure. And then we're like, well, we're from America. And they always say, we're sorry. And I'm like, yeah, we are too. That's okay. When you, did you ever debate a career in politics or were you always, were you just like, you're bit by the acting bug? You're like, mm, this is it. 
Oh, I was so little when I was bit by the acting bug um, that I really don't really want to do anything else. um, I mean, even being a director doesn't appeal to me because I just love acting so much. Um, You know, I'm I'm about to go do a voiceover. I have another one later today. I'm living the life that I always wanted. My wife constantly talks about me (laughs) running for something. And I'm like, no, because, you know, you really get beaten up as a politician. Um, yeah. Private life used to be a little more private. I mean, before Gary Hart, um, and <laughs> he started I, I just don't it. know really how that. Up. I don't know how the private life really factors into somebody's political decisions, unless of course it's being used for blackmail or something. Yeah. Uh, so I don't really know if it's any of. Well, for example, the, our current president clearly has problems with his personal life, but <laughs> there's a part of me that I don't care. I just don't care. I know. Um, it's. That's his wife's business or his girlfriend's business, his kid's business. It's really not mine. No. Nope. Um, you know, I mean, I think in as far as it affected the campaign, clearly he shouldn't have paid off somebody before the campaign. That's that obviously illegal. But, the, uh, but, you know, he's put in this situation where he has to lie. I don't know. It's one of those things. I really don't care. Um and so I don't know if I would want my personal life dragged over the coals and have people constantly analyzing everything about me. I mean, it's weird enough as an actor that people pour over everything. I mean, like they don't want me to talk about politics as if every other citizen, including generally themselves, whoever is criticizing me, doesn't talk about politics. Are you even in L.A.? They don't want you to. I would just feel like this is such a safe haven for you know people to be outspoken and to be critical. Do you get pressure? I'm talking about in a more in a public arena like Twitter or oh, like or Twitter. this podcast, for example. I'm sure if I told my my bosses, um, you know that uh, that I was doing exactly this, they would be like, "What are you doing?" Um, <laughs> because they're worried about alienating part of the audience. At the same time, I feel like I can't be a genuine citizen and not contribute. It's it, well, and it's interesting to me how Hollywood gets painted with an an odd brush when people are like. Just, you know, you hear people like at the Oscars or just actors in general, you know, shut up and act. I'm like, well, you say that, but you know that there are citizens, there are American citizens, just like you and me. They have opinions. We all have opinions. We should all be able to share it. It's just your jealousy that they have a platform that they can amplify their message or they can say it and more people hear it. But That's to deny difference. people their voice, to me, is the most un-American thing you could ever say or ever do. And so whenever people do it, it literally – it it drives me absolutely bonkers because if you, the very core of what you're saying is to deny them their first amendment rights. That's exactly right. And also the hypocrisy of it, because they're clearly expressing a political opinion while saying that you shouldn't criticize um, that you shouldn't have a political opinion. (laughs) It's, I know I was like, it sounds when I, whenever you go in that circle, I always hear Moses supposes the toes is a roses. Like it's that, (laughs) (laughs) like if you've got an opinion and the da 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 da, I'm like, it's, it's all, Were you surprised when, because I was, you supported Gary Johnson in the big, you know, back in the day too. Were you surprised that you got attention for that? Or did you get any shit for that? Or were people just really respectful? Well, I think people really misinterpreted it. Um, I, um, I did not back uh, Gary Johnson. I just went because it was at Drew's house. And I always like hearing other people. people's point of view. Um, I'm very open-minded to dialogue. I'd love to hear what different people have. I I have a lot of friends that are really diehard conservatives. They're not Trump supporters, 
they're kind of really never Trump supporters, but um, <laughs> but I, I'm open to talking to everybody about everything. I'm really uh, um, I like the discussion. I, I, I like hearing your point of view. So uh, so I just went to talk about it. Plus, I think that pot should be legalized, and he believed in that. So I was I was 100 percent for that. Well, I think it should be too. I think it's so antiquated that it's not. And I, I've got on big rants about that because I think it's, we're doing a service to our veterans and to people in chronic pain. Yeah. If you, it, as someone who's had that in the past, it is something that the fact that we're not legalizing something that is a million percent safer and better for people with pain rather than opioids, it's ridiculous. And to me, it's, it's a little soulless and it's so irresponsible and Oh, wait a minute. I'm just going on my rant right now. Sorry. I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> well, I read a biography of uh, Harry J. Anslinger, and really he – there was no problem with pot before, but his budget for uh, what was then called the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, now is the DEA, was so much less than the FBI, and he considered Hoover a, a showboater um, and somebody that was not going to take down the uh, mafia, that he really drummed up – reefer madness so that he could he could get a bigger budget and that's really all it was about and then we created this stupid prohibition law and then yeah. and then continued it anyway it's dumb well no it's it's interesting at cia when you go do your polygraph that was one of the questions they were smoked pot in at the time because i was such a nerd like i never went to a party i never did anything and when i was like no i've never done it they didn't believe me and so it was this horrible like half hour where they're berating me so i'm like crying because i wasn't popular and i'm having flashbacks i was like i was never invited to the cool smoking parties they're like smoking parties i'm like i guess that's what they're smoking called. parties that's I hilarious wanted, i wanted to go to a smoking and drinking party and they're like um <laughs> after like 30 minutes of just wailing they're like i think we believe her that's okay and you and <laughs> It's interesting because the CIA is much better. Uh, I think they're a little bit more informed in terms of that than like the FBI. They're a little bit more structured and regimented. And I think it just speaks to the job. Like I had a friend, I had two friends back in the day. One guy came in and they strapped him down to the polygraph and they said, you know, I'm, I have to make up a name so I don't say his real name. I'll call him Doug. But like, yeah. Doug, when was the last time you did drugs? And he like turned his wrist to look at his watch. He's like, um, what time is it? And <laughs> They're like, dude, you can't have done drugs within the last, you know, 365 days. He's like, I'll be back. And literally he was like, he just didn't do it. He came back and he was hired. He had a very specific set of skills. And I hate saying that because now I sound like Liam Neeson. He had a very specific set of skills. So he yeah, got yeah, hired. Yeah. Another friend, again, had a specific set of skills, but he was, I'll call him Bob. Uh, he knew what the question was going to be. So he goes, before we start, he reaches in his back pocket, slaps down an index card, and the polygrapher goes, what's this? He goes, these are all the drugs I've done. Now, everything. Wow. With, and he goes, everything with an asterisk um, are things that I made with my buddy in a bathtub. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> Which I thought was delightful. And he's like, I was so yeah. honest about it. And I think they wanted to hire him. So they were a little more lenient. Now, that doesn't happen most of the time. But yeah. now, um, so that's interesting. I love what you said about Gary Johnson, just to go back to that, because I think that's what's missing now is we don't have that dialogue anymore. We just have a constant, we have two monologues just yelling at each other, okay. hoping that somehow a word will stick in, but it doesn't. Well, it doesn't because we're not primed to listen anymore. And, and um, our national dialogue has been reduced to something that we're really not getting anywhere with any of it. Um, you know, uh, it, it's, uh, it's very frustrating. 
um, for me. I, I'm open to talking to a lot of people as long as you don't posture. That's all. And some people would say that that's a posture in itself, maybe. But um, but I, I, yeah, I'm open to talking about everything. And Drew knows that. I mean, we would have political discussions all the time on the set of the Drew Carey Show. So when he invited me, he knew that I would be interested. I think it's fascinating. I think it's it, that's how we need more of that. And that's also how the country was set. So we would have a healthy dialogue. So the best idea sort of rises to the top. Do, your, do you talk, are your kids interested in politics? Are they as involved and as sort of engaged as you were or you are? Because I just imagine that it would be something of, you know, in the family DNA. Oh, absolutely. We've continued the tradition of um, not eating in front of the television and um, you know, having a dinner uh, around the table every night and talking about the their days, and then getting to what happened uh, with the rest of the world. It's a it's an ongoing discussion that we have. Um, so that. yeah, no, I'm I'm trying to make them citizens of the world. I was going to say, is that why it, it seems to me that you travel a lot too? Is that was that one of the conscious decisions so they get that type of perspective? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it was really interesting going to to Norway and to talk to people about how they felt about America and um, and, you know, having the kids be part of that um, dialogue. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, some of it, of course, is that the, the world is a beautiful place and there's something to see. Uh, and others is uh, just to see that there are other people in the world and not just Americans and not just our own problems. I mean, I think what we're going through now, a lot of people have uh, sympathy for. I do too. Um, and I know a lot of, as you said, like uh, there is an apology tour element to it, but there's also an element of like, oh my God, it can happen to you too. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like Brexit. <laughs> oh, my dog, sorry. What kind of dogs do you have? Miniature dachshunds. Oh, they're very yeah. cute. So before I let you go, I just wanted just to plug that Veep, which is everybody's favorite show and I'm very sad it's Great over job. is premiering March 31st. It is also the show that has taught me so much about per, uh, profanity and cursing. I love that show more than anything. Better things, February 28th. It's genius. And American housewife, which I love, 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 love also because oh, I that's nice a, to hear. I have a bit of a personal connection to ABC. So I am, yeah. I do love it. And I also think it's one of those shows that there's very few shows now that you can watch as a family and really yeah. everybody gets it and everybody can feel it and see a little bit of themselves. And I think that's so lacking. And so I love that that is there for everybody. And I want to remind everybody to visit us at Deep State Radio Network. And you can support all of our work by becoming a member. Members receive early access to all of our podcasts like this one, Newsmaker Interviews. You can get swag, all that kind of good stuff. And you can follow us, which is great, on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can follow me and Diedrich as well on Twitter. And thank you so much for coming. I'm so, I was so excited to talk to you. And this was just such a great discussion. So thank you. It was really fun. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Well, now we have to. Now that you said it, I've locked you in. So uh, tomorrow, <laughs> save time. I wish I had more time. Oh, I appreciate it so much. Thank you again. Thanks, Emily. Okay, bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.